beloved, you might have heard of a book, or maybe a teaching series, from R.C. Sproul called Dust to Glory. Dust to Glory. And what he does in that teaching series is basically an overview of the whole Bible and the kind of themes of the Bible. And it's, it's a long series. And I just read this morning that he had blurbed it as the most important teaching tool that Ligonier had put out to the church. First time I read that. So he thinks a good deal of that work. And it's, it's a lot of work to capture the entire Bible, the themes of the Bible, and bring it together. It's an overview of the Bible and, and contains a number of themes. I want to develop a theme this morning that I think also runs through and kind of contains uh, something of the whole redemptive message of the Bible, and that is anthropology. Now, anthropology, you probably think of as a class you didn't pay much attention in in college or something along those lines. So there was an anthropology class, and I guess that sounds complicated, right? And when, you, when you go to an anthropology class in the public university, you learn you came from monkeys and whatever else before that, and that's anthropology. That's what they talk about. That's what they mean. But the word anthropology has a long history, well before uh, evolutionary thought, at least modern evolutionary thought. And it simply means, anthropos means man, mankind, human. And, of course, ology is the study of, the knowledge of man. What is man? And that's the question we read the psalm. It's not in Psalm 9, but in Psalm 8, asking is, what is man? What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you pay and pay attention to him. You've got the psalmist looking at creation, looking at the stars, looking all around and saying, why do you care about us? What are we that God would even pay attention? And I want to take my cue from that question. What is man? What is man that God even pays attention to him? And cover that in kind of three things. You're going to need to grab your socks and hose and pole and take some notes, so work on that one. But we're going to think of the reality of anthropology in terms of Adam, the first man, and of course humanity in Adam, and the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the two Adams, and how they both are developed in this, this understanding of anthropology in these basic three steps. There's a couple of movements in here. But the first thing really is his origin. The origin of man is imago dei, or in the image of God. His labors, the labors of man, we can categorize, I think, with some, uh, with some ease, these three, prophet, priest, and king for Adam. And then finally, his telos, which is a Greek word meaning purpose or end, which is glory. And you get that from R.C.'s title, from dust, because, of course, God fitted Adam from the dust, from dust to glory. Right? That's the span of this thing, um, and we'll try to consider that with Adam in mind, but then also with Jesus in mind. So in the first place here, the origin of man, the beginning of man. I just had a little exchange online with somebody who asked me a question saying, well, what's the difference if I believe in a magical being, an entity who's created everything, or if I believe in a magical bang that happened from which everything came? Uh, besides, she said there's scientific backing for one, but not the other. That was her question. I'm not particularly, I, I have real doubts. And trust me, I, I speak with a great deal of ignorance, so don't get me wrong. But I have real doubts of the scientific backing of the Big Bang. As far as science goes, I think we can postulate all kinds of things based upon things we do know, but the things we postulate we don't know, and so on. So leaving all that alone, I don't want to deal with the science, but, you know, as far as what humans are, what are people, what are you? Are you just an evolved turd? Are you evolved scum? Are you evolved nothing? Are you meaningless? Because that's clearly what follows 
out of evolutionary theory. That's what it means. It's, it's, like, a, it's like an acid that eats through everything it's in, right, this evolutionary theory. So watch out for it. But uh, if, if we take that seriously, this, this kind of doctrine that's been pushing and pushing, and I kind of think falling away here, but for the last at least 150 years, it's kind of big business, right, that we're just evolved scum. We mean nothing. It's meaningless. We come from nowhere. We're going to nowhere. And we amount to nothing. Now, I ask, what kind of mindset, what kind of actions follow from that? What follows from you mean nothing and everything means nothing? Well, definitely things follow from that. It gives you lead to do all sorts of things. I can think of how biological Darwinism turned into social Darwinism, and the biologists say, oh, that's inappropriate. You can't take biological theory and apply it to social issues. Too bad. (laughs) It happens, and it happens with the death of many, millions of people. And you can tell why, because we're just sacks of protoplasm. What does it matter? Does it matter if you mow the lawn? Is the grass grieved because you cut it? How is that any different from mowing down human beings? So the idea of where we come from really does hold some power for us in how we live and how we think and what we do and what's justified in society, what we think is right and wrong. These things flow out of that where we come from, who we really are. Another little option, and I don't know this one as well, nothing I know the first one that well, is Hinduism. I don't know the origins of man in Hinduism, I don't get that, but I do understand the reincarnation, and I do understand the caste system of humanity that's seen, um, which is to say every person who dies is brought back as something, whether a human or something else. And if they are a human, why, that's, that's better, you're getting up there, but then there's the castes of humans, right, within the Hindu system. Um, and it's a very vigorous caste system to the point where uh, if you're below in the caste or at the bottom of the caste system, we don't care about you. You don't mean anything. We're not going to go out of our way to help you. And you can think of places like Calcutta. It's like, wow, there's enormous amounts of poverty and grief that people don't care about. And we do the same thing, really, in our, our own cities and things, too. But I think that if you're thinking of the origin or the meaning of humanity, and if we're just these things that kind of keep cycling through, and, and anyway, you're down there anyway, so figure it out, maybe in the next life or the one after, and move on. Right? Those, these have implications for how we live our lives and the way we treat ourselves and other people. The Christian view, of course, is that we are dust made alive by divine breath. Look at Genesis chapter 2, particularly verse 5 and following. And when there was no bush of the field, yet it was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Keep in mind that, that word work right there. And, and a mist was going up from the land, watering the whole face of the ground, and then Yahweh God formed man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay, so we have the origin of man right there. But then also a little more as we go on. This will help out a little later. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there, there he put the man whom he had formed out of the ground. Uh, the Yahweh God made to spring up every tree is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. Yes, most specifically here, we have God making Adam, forming him from the, the, from the dust, so from the ground he'd already made. Right? So it's like he takes up some of his creation that he'd already made, 
forms the man out of it and then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, of course, the word breath has, has to do with spirit or wind. They're all the same word. Uh, so it's, it's, the, it's God breathing his spirit, his spirit into man, Adam, and making him live. And as we look at just in a moment, we'll see that that has to do with being created in God's image. Right? God made everything. He, he made all the animals. He made plants. He made dry land and separated the waters and the, the skies. Blah, blah, blah. did it all, right? But only one part of this creation, one specific part, is made in the image of God. One specific part has God, as it were, putting his mouth on the nostrils of Adam to blow into him. Like. Now, what, a, what an interesting and crude notion we have there right at the beginning. So what is man? God breathed the life into Adam, and he became a living being. Okay, so now we have, I think, a, a beginning, at least of the Christian view of things, and that's a little bit different from evolved pond scum. It's a little bit different from reincarnated whatever. It is God Almighty who has made humanity. And as we'll see just in a second as we look down at verse... Well, if we look back up at verse 26, so just go up, we'll read about the image of God here in verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image and likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Sounds a little bit like Psalm 8. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Okay, so we have another dimension here. In, in chapter 2, we had this kind of focused look at the garden and God's work there. Um, and then, the, you know, the, God finally saying it's not good that man be alone, and then the creation of Eve and so on comes out of that. But here in chapter 1, we have a little more of an overview of the thing, and we have Adam and Eve in view, male and female. He created them. Now, we have in this, Christian, something of a special dignity. God has made humans in his own image, in his own likeness, separated from the rest of creation, certainly separated from himself, because we're made in the image of God. does not mean we're gods, like God. We are created. We're, We're creatures, yet we're creatures in the image and likeness of God. And that gives a particular dignity to every single human being, and is the very basis for capital punishment and the very basis for being against abortion. Because humans are made in the image of God. God argues that because, and this is now in Genesis 9, because humans are made in the image of God, therefore if a man sheds another man's blood, by a man shall his blood be shed. Because man is made in the image of God, and that's to be protected and kept, as we'll see with the prophet, priest, and king in just a moment. So we have a special created dignity and purpose now, does, are there certain mindsets that flow out of that? Are there certain ways of thinking that flow out of being created in the image of God? You better believe there are. And do they tend to build societies and civilizations that are glorious? Indeed, they have. But let me mention one more thing before moving on from the origins here. And it's silly that it needs to be said. I mean, it's silly to the point of, I might as well be up here in a clown hat to have to say something like this. God made us male and female. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it, all you have to do is look. All you have to do is simply open your eyes and look at creation, and you see that everywhere. You see that God has made male and female, and that's how it works, and he's made us male and female. It doesn't mean it doesn't get mixed up. It doesn't mean there aren't problems sometimes, even physiological problems. Okay, those happen. 
We're in, a, we're in a fallen world. We haven't got there yet. But those things do happen. There are problems. And we get confused. No question. But God has made us male and female. That's how he's made us. And that is his image in humanity. Those two together. So it's, it's worth saying because, I mean, all you have to do is walk out the door and you'll hear 16 people tell you, that, you know, gender is this construct and whatever else, and you can be what you want, and you can be non-binary, you can be a cat, you can be a whatever, you, you know, you just make it up and go, right? But that's not it. That's just simple hearts, simple hearts expressing themselves, not faithfulness to what God has revealed, not only in the scripture, very clearly, most clearly, but in nature as well, all around us, that he's made us male and female, and praise his name for that. Let's hang on to that and fight for it. So, as far as the origins of man, we're made in the image of God. And that gives us a dignity and, and sets the stage for us to think appropriately about who we are, what we're to do, and our purpose, why we're, why we're here. So let's move on to the labors of Adam as prophet, priest, and king, which is the way we usually say those. I'm going to take it, or it's the order we usually say them. I'm going to take them in a different order, what I think is easiest, the hardest possibly, at least as far as I'm presenting it this morning. And the easiest one is king. God created Adam to be king. He was to rule. He was to have dominion. And as, as far as you read there in Genesis chapter 1, he used to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. We read just the same thing in, in Psalm chapter 8. Right? This is how God made humans, but he made Adam this way to begin with, and we are his children, and, and we carry this on. So God's vice regent on earth was Adam. Adam was made to rule right there from the Garden of Eden, and as we'll... I'll hint at. There are a lot of things here that I'm very curious about and haven't really explored, but to take Eden and that rule in Eden, his, his, his kingly rule, his prophetic work, and his priestly labors, and spread them to the ends of the earth. Spread that everywhere was the plan. Right? So but just take the, just the garden, and Adam's given not only the, the vice regency to rule over all these things, but even joins with God in naming the animals. And giving them names. So we can see Adam is made to be a king. He's made to rule. But he's also made to be a prophet. This one is maybe a little bit harder to see. But what does a prophet do other than say what God says? Speak for God to God's people or to the people or to the world or whoever. Publish what God has said. That's what a prophet does. Too often we think of a prophet as someone who foretells, tells the future. And sometimes prophets do that, but oftentimes they have nothing to do with telling the future. They're telling the present. Right? They're bringing God's word to bear on God's people right now. This is what God has said. Chris Lynch used to call in seminary the prophets, covenant lawyers. They're the ones bringing suit against the people of Israel. They're the lawyers coming bringing the, the case. Right? They're arguing God's and then just saying what God has said. Uh, so, as, as a prophet then, what is the prophetic aspect of Adam's labors there in the Garden of Eden? Well, he has a wife. And by and by he'll have children. And it's his job as, as, as the prophet then to speak God's word. To tell his wife what God has said. To tell his children what God has said and so on. He's going to repeat and tell what God has said. So there's a prophetic reality there. And interestingly, it seems to have gotten jumbled up out of Eve's mouth anyway when she's talking to the serpent. And she says, of course, here's the tree. We should neither eat the fruit nor touch it. Right? Well, God didn't say touch it. So you wonder at that point how she got the idea there. And different people have different things to say. The scripture doesn't tell us how. Uh, but maybe it's part of, uh, of maybe it's part of Adam's prophetic office where he's instructing his wife. Here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's the garden. Here's what God said. Here's what I want you to do. Don't even touch it. 
So I mean, you know, something like that, possibility. But nonetheless, maybe gets at this idea of, of Adam as a prophet speaking the word of God to those um, who are in front of him, those who God has put into his life. Maybe a more, I think, detailed and interesting one here is the priesthood of Adam in the garden. Look back to Genesis 2.15. Verse 15 says, And Yahweh God took the man, as Adam, of course, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, you hear that, you think, oh, well, work and keep. Okay, well, it's a garden, right? And we don't, you know, not like a box garden or something, but a, a much bigger expanse, a place full of trees and beauty and all sorts of things like that. So a large area, and he's to work it and to keep it. Now, I've made comments before and even done small sermons on the work being before the fall. God's given Adam work here in the garden before sin. Right? He wants him to, to labor before sin even is in the picture. So work is not an issue of sin. Sin compounds work, though. Sin makes work hard because the earth is cursed. God's made our work hard because of sin, but there was hard work before that, not in the same way. But the, more than just work, and you might think, you know, okay, dig in the soil or cultivate the plants or you know, things like this. But the word work is picked up many times in Scripture in lots of ways. It's, very, it's kind of a common word. But it's, it is used specifically for priestly work, for the work the priests themselves do. And look at Leviticus. Keep your finger there in Genesis. Look at, I'm sorry, Numbers 3. Flip over to Numbers 3. This is one example, probably a score of examples I could give. So Numbers chapter 3, verses 5 to 10. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribes of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. And they shall keep guard. So there's your keep guard. So we have, we have work and keep. Okay? This is the keep guard is the guarding part. The working is, is this ministry going on. Um, that's the next word here. I'll start reading verse 6 again. Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron that they may minister to him. That's the word work. The same word work in, in Genesis 2. Right? That Adam's going to work the garden. They're going to work um, uh, right here for, for Aaron, the priest. They minister to him. And they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister, there it is again, at the tabernacle. And they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting. And they shall keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. You shall appoint Aaron and his sons. uh, And they shall guard the priesthood. If any outsider comes near, they shall be put to death. Okay, so in that text, and that's just one example, I said there are many, many of them through numbers, as far as this priestly instruction, priests are to work and keep. Minister and keep. Just the same as Adam in the garden was to work and keep. Minister and guard. And so these words are picked up from Adam and pushed into the priesthood and run down through Israel's history that the priests are working and keeping. Working and keeping. Which is to say, ministering and guarding. Okay, ministering and guarding. Priests we often think of as handling sacrifices. They're the ones who are involved in the making of the sacrifices. The people would bring the animal to them. The priest would do the business, sacrifice, do the stuff with the blood, move things around, and that's kind of the priestly aspect. That's just one, just one aspect of the priestly service at the temple in particular. But we might broaden it out a little bit and say priests are to lead the people of God in worship. By their labors, by their words, by their actions, they're to lead God's people in divine Worship. And they're also to protect that worship and the flock. 
You see, so there's, there's an authority of the priest to do certain works, and now those works are to bring people to God, but also to protect those holy things and to protect that worship as well. That's a priestly aspect. And now maybe you can see that back with Adam. Adam was to lead his wife in the worship of God and his children as they came. Maybe all creation, maybe all the animals and the trees and the fields clapping their hands. Yeah, and whatever else, I don't know. But that's the charge of Adam, is to work that garden, which is to say, do that priestly ministry, to offer it to God, but also to keep it and protect it. You might say, well, protect it from what? Well, did you read any farther in the book of Genesis? There's some protection needed that he did not give. Right? She gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. That's a complete abdication and breaking of the priestly duties, the kingly duties, and the prophetic duties God had given to Adam in the garden. So we see then that Adam failed. Adam failed in his work. God created Adam in his own image, breathed into him the breath of life, and he had the image and likeness of God and dignity and glory, and yet he falls. He sins. He does what God says not to do. And so we have the fall of Adam and the fall of mankind. And that is part of our anthropology. But do notice it's the second part of our anthropology. Sometimes we'll think of and talk about natural man, because Paul talks that way. That means fallen man or sinful man. Man by nature as fallen. But not man by nature as unfallen, which came first. God created Adam upright first. And then he fell. That's the ruin. So it's the creation, the corruption, and then finally the restoration, which is in the last Adam and the glorification. But before we move on, beyond the failure here, there is his telos. What's Adam's telos as he's created? His purpose. And of course, his purpose is glory. God made him for glory. More on this later because we don't see it here, do we? We see God creating Adam, and that's awesome. And we see the garden, and that's great. And the work in it, and that's great. But then we see the fall, and we don't see the purpose develop. We don't see the goal happen, because the problem happened. Right? It cut off. So when Paul says, in this very famous passage that we use in our Romans road, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's commandments. Well, we have fallen short of God's commandments. We've broken them and so on. But that's not what he says, is it? We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin stops this purpose from coming, which is the glory of God in humanity. That, that, that dust that God blew into the nostrils, the breath of life, should go to glory. The fullness of God's redemptive plan. And when I say the fullness of God's plan for life, for humans and the whole earth, but that's cut off at the knees by sin. And that's the, the disappointment, of course, the demise of the first Adam. Adam lost his purpose. He lost his goal. Right? This glory that was set before him. And losing your goal, your purpose, is discouraging. And not to have that purpose is, is discouraging. Even dehumanizing, as it turns out. So anthropology, anthropology then, after the fall, is in shambles. Right? Created upright. We have sought out many designs in Adam. But anthropology is kind of a, a bad news. We got a bunch of sinners sinning. We got a bunch of rebels rebelling because our first father rebelled and sinned. And so do we in him? 
Let's say God counts us as sinners for his sin, but then we just add our own sins right to it. Right? We, we rob ourselves at that point of the glory of God as well. So we have to call Jesus in a, in a fix who can bring it back together. And that, of course, is the last Adam, the God-man himself. Now, the last Adam terminology is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where uh, Paul talks about the first Adam uh, that God breathed life into, and then the last Adam is a life-giving spirit, and he kind of compares Jesus and Adam this way. I have to confess, there have been quite a few times I brought up the first Adam, second Adam, or first Adam, last Adam uh, theological framework to people, and they have had no idea what I was talking about, whatever. Uh, even people that really should know. Um, I mean, fully trained kind of Baptist pastors and a, a, a professor at the university I went to. She was a really smart woman, but she knew nothing about Christianity, uh, including some kind of, I think, our relatively basic Christian doctrines that we have. What Adam failed to do, Christ came in and fulfilled. He came in and did what Adam failed to do. So we have the first and last Adam. So let's run through the same thing again. The origins. What are the origins of this last Adam, the second Adam? You might say it's pretty simple. John takes us right there. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word made his tent in our midst. That is to say, he became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man. Okay, the eternal word of God, that is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh, became a man. We have the incarnation of God, the God-man, two distinct natures, divinity, humanity, combined in one person, forever. Okay, so we have the God-man, and we draw that from John and other places. But we also know that Jesus, being a God-man, is the express image of God. We're made in the image of God. Humanity's made in the image of God. Adam's made in the image of God and all his children. But Jesus is the express image of God. There's something tighter going on here. Listen to the beginning of the epistle of the Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let's there at the end. That he is the, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So he has something tighter going on, something more specific in the image of God going on in the Son of God, the God-man, than we had in Adam, his creation from the dust. Oh, they're similar. They're similar. In Colossians, Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And again, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. So we have this God-man, one person forever, exact imprint of God's nature, the radiance of his glory. Indeed, even the fullness of God pleased to dwell in him bodily. And so we have the last Adam. This is the one who comes to fix what Adam broke. This is the one who comes to bring us to the telos, the purpose of Adam, that Adam lost. Indeed, this is the one who comes and fulfills all of those labors that Adam didn't fulfill in order to bring about that telos that he lost. So first, the labors then. Is it interesting to ask, how is Jesus king? You might say, well, we call him King Jesus. Maybe that's how. 
And we do. And we're right to do that. But think about his earthly ministry. How did he show his kingly capacity? Not so much. Right? It's a little more veiled in this because we talk about the ministry of humility of Jesus from the incarnation right on from being, you know, from the womb of the virgin all the way to the empty tomb on Easter morning. That we call it the ministry of humility. He doesn't really show forth his, his kingliness because he's here to serve. He's that kind of king. So we see that aspect of, of his rule, that he's here to serve. That's something of the kingly role. But we might see a bit of the power and dominion of Jesus, just a glimpse of it, and the kind of glimpse of it that um, took the apostles from sheer horror to overtime horror, well beyond that when they think they're dying in the winds and the waves of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves, and it's still. There's a sign of power. There's a show of dominion. Right? To the point where even the ones he loves and his disciples are like, Yowza! Who are we dealing with here? Right? Who are we, this, he's a man, but he just stopped the storm. He just made this place calm for other miracles as well that show at least his divine power, but his particular rule over heaven and earth and over the hearts of men, certainly. So we distinguish from the humility of Christ and the exaltation of Christ, or the glorious ministry from his resurrection and after. So... In his earthly work, we see more of his glory, I'm sorry, more of his humility and service as a king. How about as a prophet? Flip to Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew John, John 17. I'll just read verses 6 through 8 right now. We'll come back to this text. Jesus praying to his father. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. That would be the apostles, specifically. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So we have here Jesus praying for his disciples, his apostles, right? The, uh, the, the, The close band there is saying, hey, they know everything that you gave me, I gave to them. And they know that what I gave to them was from you. Well, that's, that's what a prophet does. A prophet takes from God and gives to, uh, to the people, or gives to the world, or, or repeats and proclaims what God has said. Uh, but Jesus, I think, takes it even further and says, hey, like, word for word, God, I've done, I've given everything you've given me to give. Right? So he is uh, the prophet par excellence at that point. He's the one that is above all the others. As speaking and, and heralding and confirming the word of God by his, by his ministry that way. Well, how about a priest? He's a king and he rules, and we see that especially it is ruling at the right hand of God, his father, building his kingdom now, so we get to experience the reign of Christ as king, kind of in an invisible way, right? As, as we have to believe, we have to trust that he is king, though we cannot see our king. He is also a prophet, speaking word for word the, the the doctrine of God to his disciples, that they should go ahead and receive that and propagate it as well. But finally, as a priest, Jesus as a priest. Well, he's a priest, first of all, because he purged our sins by his sacrifice. He brought a sacrifice to God. He brought an offering to God, indeed, his very own body. His body is cut up. His body is bled as a sacrifice to God. It is the sacrifice of God. All the other ones pointing forward to it. 
All of our praise pointing back to it. It is the sacrifice to God for the sins of the world. He's the priest offering the sacrifice of himself. But he also protects and keeps the church, his people. Just like we saw priests did. Not only did Adam in the garden, he's supposed to like, minister and protect, but then you see the priests through Israel's history, ministering and offering to God, but also protecting the holy things. Well, Jesus is doing exactly the same thing. Jesus protects and keeps his own. He gives us promises and says, nobody, Christian, can take you out of my hands. Nobody, nothing can take you out of my hands or out of my father's hands. Right? He's protecting us and he'll keep us just like a priest will do in that authority. But he also offers a sanctified gift. Now listen to this. He offers the sanctified gift of humanity to God. Just like Paul was doing in the, like the, his ministry of wanting to get the Gentiles, right? I want to offer the Gentiles to God. That's my offering, my priestly offering. Well, Jesus Christ doesn't just offer the Gentiles. He offers the Jews too. All of them in him. He is the priest bringing humanity to God. A sanctified humanity. A life in which there is neither spot nor blemish is what he will be presented with and which will turn back to his, his Heavenly Father. Because, you know, every individual, every single person, every elect member of the church was chosen by the Father and the Son before foundation of the world and given to the Son that he should redeem them and as a priest... Give them back to his Father. That's, that's the priestly offering of the world by Jesus Christ, by his blood and by his broken body. And of course he protects us and he keeps us all along the way. Behold the priest of God. Behold the great priestly duty of Jesus Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king. So the first Adam came and destroyed the whole program. Right, he got set up just perfect. He's out there in his new office, and he's got his new snazzy stuff, and everything's there. And he ruins it. First day of work. Right, he ruins the whole program. But someone else has to come in. The second Adam, the last Adam, comes in and picks up the pieces the first Adam had broken and brings them back together, not just to restore them. We have creation, corruption, restoration, but glorification. More than that. More than restoration. A greater good, a greater salvation than what we have lost in Adam. So as far as his telos, his purpose, what is the purpose of Christ relative to Adam, being the second Adam and the humanity that he represents? We'll go back to John 17, right at the beginning. And Jesus had spoken these words. He said, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom uh, you have given, to those to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is praying to his heavenly father, referencing eternity past, saying, I have existed with you forever in glory, father. I want my people down here who I'm sharing this with to come see me in that glory. I want them to see that eternal glory that I've shared with you for all time. And that we only see have veiled before our eyes because of the incarnation. And of course, our own sin. 
But that will be all unveiled. And we see that maybe on the Mount of Transfiguration a little bit. Where you see the unveiling of the full humanity of Christ, the glory. But that's what he's come. He's come to bring us to glory by showing us in the first place and including us in his own glory. His own glory that he had with the Father before the world began. And indeed, he shares that with us. That's the point. So we see the glorious telos of Christ. He, he wants to be in that glory again after this incarnation, death, and resurrection, and finally ascension, to share in that glory again with his Father. But he wants us to be involved in it. He wants to have the body with the head. He, has, he wants to have the body with the head. The head should be glorified, and we should glory in the glory of our head. But here's the thing is he shares it with us. Which is weird. Because... He always says, I don't share my glory with another. I don't, I don't give my glory to anyone else. But Jesus says, here, come into me, and you'll share in the glory of God. Look down toward the bottom of this chapter, verses 19 and following. And for their sake, as these apostles still, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this is part of the Christian reality of uh, you know, the world looking in at the Christian faith, and we're seeing us in Christ, and Christ in us, and us in the Father in Christ. And there's a you know, temporal reality we're seeing here. <clears throat> I forgot where it was. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I am them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. So... It's enough for our purposes that Jesus is praying and his desire is his goal and his purpose is to draw us to glory. To show us his glory and have us share in that in him. And so as we kind of pull together and think of that, we have the, the origin of Adam made in the image of God, made for glory, given the tasks, the labors of a prophet, a priest, and a king. But we have failure in that. We have sin and rebellion in Adam plunging the whole race of mankind into sin and rebellion and losing for us that tell us, that purpose, that goal. And again, what's more dehumanizing than losing the goal of being human, which is to be glorified in the glory of God through Christ Jesus. But we have plenty of bumps along the way, don't we? So we talk about this, say, we have a big bump at the beginning in Adam. That's messed everything up. We have lots of bumps along the way, even as Christians who are sharing in this ministry that Christ is talking about here in John 17. But listen to the words of Paul from Romans chapter 8 and be encouraged to hang in there, to press forward, to, to, to pursue the upward call day by day in Christ Jesus. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery... To fall back again into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Then heirs. We have an inheritance, Christian. We're children of God through Christ, and we have an inheritance. 
If children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we be, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Christian, you're a son of the Most High. You're a brother of Jesus Christ himself, who has glory laid up for you to join in, provided that you suffer with him, that you should be glorified together with him. That is the Christian life. We suffer in hope. The hope we have is the purpose that Christ has fulfilled and brought to us that Adam lost. But Christ picked up and said, no, I have glory. I, I want, I'm going to go back and be in the glory that I have my Father. I want you to see me in it. I want you to come be a part of it. I'll get you there. I'll bring you there. Hang in there. Don't give up. Keep clinging to Christ. Keep knowing that He is your true prophet, priest, and king. And there really is no other. Hang on to Him and serve Him. Give yourself to His service even the way he gave himself up even to death for you. Give yourself up to death for him, because whoever loses his life for Christ and the gospel will save it. But whoever wants to keep his life, Jesus says, will lose it. So Jesus has brought together this this whole thing from being an image of God to the work of prophet, priest, and king to attain that very goal of God, the glorification of humans, the glorification of humanity in Christ Jesus. And this we have through Christ alone. He is the last Adam. He is the one who moves us from dust, Christian, to glory. So hang in there. Serve the Lord. Trust the Lord. Rest in our Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the true man. Amen.